The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Book of Acts is where we're studying. We've begun to consider this book authored by Luke, inspired, of course, by God, written just as the Gospel of Luke was to this man, Theophilus, lover of God. We wonder exactly who he was. We don't know. We think he was a real person, a real inquirer, not just a fictional uh, somebody. Luke was writing to this person, probably in Rome, to strengthen the faith and give an orderly account of Christian faith, first in the gospel and now in the book of Acts. We looked at chapter 1, looked at the very beginning of 2 with the event of Pentecost and the giving of languages, announcing that the gospel was for all people. Now we begin Peter's sermon, which I'm going to treat in two parts because there's a lot to it. And I'm just going to sort of break at an awkward place a little bit at just going through verse 24. Listen as I read Acts 2, verses 14 to 24. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is God's holy word. I wonder if you could imagine yourself offered an opportunity in life where you would 
address a gathering of family members, maybe neighbors, friends, co-workers, all people perhaps that you knew, a friendly crowd, so to speak, and be assigned to address them about your Christian faith. Well, many of you would say to me right away, uh, the problem there is the word crowd, isn't it? For most people, speaking in public is, is the biggest fear of all. And if you had that opportunity with 50 or 100 gathered, I suppose many of you would have to really gulp very hard before you would undertake it, even as a genuine Christian. But if we could somehow get you past that fear factor and you were going to speak, or say you were going to issue a written message for folks like that to read about your faith, I'm asking you, what do you think the message would be about? You would sit down, I hope, and, you know, perhaps think about your own testimony, your own experience in Christian faith, Scripture that's very meaningful to you, and I wonder what topic or text would come out for your one-shot summary at speaking about faith to others. Do you suppose perhaps you'd go to the book of Ezekiel? and talk about obscure prophecies that Ezekiel had, which are, of course, part of God's Word, but nevertheless are kind of out there at the periphery of the matters of faith. Would you perhaps go to Exodus and talk about the gold candlesticks and the other furnishings of the tabernacle? Would you go to the books of Chronicles and present a little discourse about the chronology of the Israelite kings? Well, probably you wouldn't. Of course, those are important parts of God's Word in their own way. But I would guess if your assignment was summarize Christian faith for you, as it means something to you, none of those books would get into discussion. I would assume at least that you would in your own way as a believer in Christ want to go to what we call the gospel, the good news of Christ, the cross. And the resurrection, I would think, would be among that which you would want to mention and emphasize. Well, it's along these lines that we read Acts 2.14 and following today when Peter has the opportunity as the leader of the remaining apostles, the 11 apostles, or 12 as they were supplemented by a choice of Matthias, he has the opportunity to stand up and give the very first sermon in the Christian era. And believe me, while it draws directly and immediately from a text of the Old Testament, it definitely is not discussing the candlesticks in the tabernacle or the line of kings in the book of Chronicles. It's discussing the absolute core of Christian faith. As college students are off now in a fall, we just talked to our college freshman granddaughter last night. And, of course, you know, the first thing you do in the early time in college is take the basic courses that are, that are labeled 101, right? Everybody knows what we mean when we say something is 101. It's the first level, lowest level course that you're going to take. It's not 501, which is for seniors or, or perhaps master's level students. Well, Peter stood up and spoke Christianity 101 on his first occasion to preach a sermon. And you know, I I found myself asking once again as I thought about the person delivering this sermon in Acts 2 that I 
could ask myself the question, what exactly happened to this guy, Peter? Between the end of the Gospels, the end of Luke or any other Gospel, and here. Because you remember him. Always the guy whose mouth is open before his brain is engaged. Always the guy whose foot was in that mouth up to the kneecap much of the time. Who could speak, he was bold. His boldness in being the the one who volunteers to speak doesn't surprise us because that's entirely consistent. But so many times he spoke things that were actually foolish or too blunt or not well considered, and and he would have been called not the communicator of the year, but the blunderer of the year before this. But now, here is Peter, assured in the resurrection of Christ and full of the Holy Spirit of Christ, standing to give a sermon that is a sermon of a lifetime going straight into the beating heart of what Christianity is all about. And in response to it, I didn't get that far in my reading, but if you went down further in the text, you would find that indeed several thousand people, verse 41 of chapter 2, several thousand, 3,000 souls, Luke says, responded in some way to this sermon. That's incredible. You know, Billy Graham would have been proud of those numbers. 3,000 souls responding to a single sermon. By the way, I should mention that as we study Acts and go further in it, you're going to find out, if you're not expecting this, that within the 28 chapters of Acts, there are more condensed sermons than in any other book of the Bible. Some 15 sermons are found in this book. Now, they're not the whole discourse. They couldn't be. We wouldn't imagine that they spoke for two or three minutes, which is all it takes to read the words of the discourse, even of Peter's sermon. The longest is Stephen's later on, and it's it's a rather lengthy chapter, and yet it too is more like a shorthand summary, certainly, of, of the highlights of what they said in these sermons. As a matter of fact, we have eight messages by Peter, five by Paul, and one each by Stephen and James in the book of Acts. So it's a book of sermons, and we're going to encounter these. But here's the first. Not just the first of Acts, but the first of the Christian era. And in this message, Peter shows us that he was a very changed man. A man now who has a comprehension of things on a bigger scale. He understands doctrine, Old Testament, and new in a way he certainly didn't before. And he sees the depths and the meaning and the goals and the motives of what God is doing in Christ as he never did before. And God used preaching then as he uses preaching today as a select vehicle of his truth. So we're just going to see the first half of this sermon today and hopefully go on more with it next time. You know, there are times when I I feel sure that maybe I speak too much about the more complex areas or the more uh, doctrinally layered things of Christianity. We've had the wonderful, wonderful challenge more in the second service than this, if you you haven't realized it. We, We had 22 refugees with us last Sunday, people from other countries new to Lancaster and barely able to understand our language. And they all sit right there because they want to get close and be close to the preacher so they can understand as well as possible. It's a thrill to preach to these folks and to wonder what's going on in their minds. And I think to myself, is, is the simplicity, is, is Christianity 101 
being made clear enough to folks like that whose who's even communication skills in English is not very strong yet. Well, Peter is really at Christianity 101 in this sermon. What he puts forth isn't layered or complex in terms of doctrine. It's a simple message. It's this, Christianity is Christ. And Christ is Christianity. And if we've not made that simple message clear enough, perhaps today we can deal with that without frills or heavy doctrine or window dressing of any kind, dealing with the most basic beginning that we must know to trust Jesus and see him as the very center of all our lives. I'm going to divide the text in an odd way. My first point has nine verses, and then the second and third points each have just one. So that may seem a little different to you, but uh, I'll go through verse 22 in the first point, and then verse 23 is second point, and verse 24 is the last. First, I summarize Acts 2, 14 to 22 under this heading. It may sound strange, but I think you'll understand as I unfold it. The Bible presents to us a river of divine wonders climaxing in the great waterfall of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this pictorially. The Bible presents a river of wonders climaxing in the great waterfall of Jesus Christ. I've never set foot on the continent of Africa. Some of you have. If I could somehow have a comprehensive tour of Africa, one thing I wish it could include among the many beauties that there would be to see in that continent would be the country of Zambia. And what I would want to see in Zambia would be the Zambezi River. And the reason I want to see the Zambezi River, if you're knowledgeable of these things, is because along the course of the Zambezi River is that which has been called many times one of the seven wonders of the world, Victoria Falls. Now, I've seen Niagara Falls lots of times because I grew up within an hour of it. But I've seen the pictures only of Victoria Falls, which is a fall of water twice the height of Niagara Falls. Not as wide, but twice the height. That leaves me stunned because I know how stunned I am by Niagara Falls. I'm told that the mist above Victoria Falls is like rain going up 1,200 feet So hard is the plunge down into the cataract, and that mist can be seen 30 miles away. That must be a wonderful... Has anybody ever seen Victoria Falls? Anybody? Ah, some people have. Amazing. I'd like to see that, and I'd certainly give praise to God for creating such a thing as that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute how that relates. I think you'll see it, but Peter rose to speak here in Acts 2.14, and he was determined to correct mockery that was coming from the crowd in the street towards him and his fellow apostles. Now, they were out of doors. They had spilled out of the room where they were, speaking these praises of God in many different languages of the world, as we saw last time. And immediately, of course, people don't understand something. They have to deride it. They have to mock it. They have to find a negative reason for it. And so some people said, well, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour of the day. 9 o'clock, and look, those people are drunk. That's how human thinking 
dismisses things it doesn't understand. Peter stands to raise his voice and answer this, and he says, no, this, these are not drunken people. This is a miracle from God. This speaking in languages that we looked at last time, languages that the disciples themselves had not learned before but were known languages by people of earth, was to show an obvious new lesson that the good news about Christ crucified and risen was not for the Israelites alone. It was for all men, Jews and Gentiles, Egyptians, Syrians, Spaniards, Romans. And this gift of languages simply symbolized the way in which the gospel was going to go out, and of course today has gone out, to be spoken in and understood in all the different languages of the earth. Peter told the crowd, he said, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, look, You hear us acting outside of normal or what you would call rational behavior. It sounds to you like we're out of control like drunken men. Well, let me tell you, we are out of control. But what we are is under the control of the supernatural power of God. And let me explain that to you. That was his opening. And then the sermon, of course, unfolds from there. And Peter draws what I'm calling, so that you might picture it in your mind, perhaps, a river, a broad and beautiful flowing river of miraculous wonders and signs and revelations that God has brought throughout the long history of the ages. And he has put these signs in heaven above and in miracles worked by his prophets on occasion and in the words of the prophets themselves, and his truth, his revelation has been flowing and flowing for a long time. But then he quotes, of course, from the Old Testament prophet Joel, who said, there's going to be a climax to all this river of God's revelation. And in what Joel called the last days, God's spirit would be poured out not just in a in a minuscule, parceled way that just a few individuals like Elijah or Moses or Abraham or somebody prophesied or, or did a miracle, there'd be this broad, wonderful outpouring of God's Spirit and tremendous things would take place upon many people, men and women like alike, who are in the faith of God. And further, Joel's prophecy by God had said, And this is speaking for God himself. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Now, we could take a lot of time and enumerate wonders and signs that God revealed through the whole course of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. But the point here is God had had been speaking, had been working for centuries, beginning from the Garden of Eden through Abraham and Moses and the prophets. Supernatural things took place. Great words, not of mere human origin, were given. And as Joel predicted, there was going to be a final phase. Joel called it the last days. I'm always interested in people with a knack for prophecy who once in a while will say to me, well, pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? I say, of course we are. Do you read your Bible? The Bible calls the time from Jesus appearing Onward, the last days. It's not simply some little segment of time before the final appearing of Christ. We are in the last days. We are in the time of a climax to human history. And in verse 22, Peter 
specifies this flowing river of God's revelation and wonders, brings it to a a point in verse 22 when he says, now hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Let me stop in mid-sentence. What Peter's saying is, Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. The great river of historic revelation has now come over the precipice into a plunging, wonderful, spectacular waterfall of God's climactic truth, and that waterfall is not Victoria Falls, it's Jesus Christ. Think of it that way. That you might keep in your mind, the picture of what Peter is saying is happening here in Acts, that that God accredited Jesus by many miracles, by the way, it says here. He was accredited, attested to in the ESV by the works and wonders and signs that God did in his life. These things had a purpose. Jesus didn't willy-nilly raise somebody from the dead or multiply bread or walk on water just to say, look, I'm a miracle man. These things were God's credits to him, visibly saying, this is my son, the climactic revelation of all I'm doing in the world. He is, so to speak, God's mighty waterfall of revelation and accomplishment in the world. The Bible presents a river of divine wonders climaxing in the waterfall of Christ. Well, that's a way of of hopefully having you picture those first nine verses. But now I want to spend the rest of our time on just two verses because they're very crucial and very wonderful. Acts 2.23 brings our second point here. As Peter advances in this sermon, and I stopped in the middle of the sentence as verse 22 does, my punctuation in the ESV has a a dash, a long dash at the end of uh, verse 22, meaning the sentence isn't completed. And 23 is the crux of it all when it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is an astonishing declaration that Peter made. Now he says it is not just general revelation, wonders and signs accrediting Jesus. Now it is the death of Jesus that is in center focus. The death of him on a cross moves to center stage with the spotlight on it. And my second point says to you, Jesus was killed by lawless men and his loving father. Jesus was killed by lawless men and his loving father. I'm sure you could hardly have missed the news this past week about the murder of U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three security people or aides to him at the American consulate in Benghazi, Libya. It's been all over the news. First time an ambassador has been killed by our, from our country in quite a while. An attack that apparently was done by cowardly militants acting outside the law of their own nation, a nation which officially, anyway, wants peace with us and is apparently ashamed that there would be thugs or terrorists acting as a law unto themselves, acting this way within their borders. Well, that certainly illustrates what a lawless man is bringing someone to death. Now, having already brought Jesus onto center stage here, Peter 
adds a very deep thrust at his hearers. And you have to remember who his hearers are and where they are. This is Jerusalem. When did Jesus die? Exactly 50 days before this. 50 days. Cast your mind back to what you were doing. I know you probably don't know exactly what the day was and exactly what you were doing, but cast your mind back 50 days ago. It was the middle of July. Maybe you were on vacation. Maybe you were at the beach or in the mountains somewhere, visiting relatives, having a picnic, mowing your lawn. 50 days ago. It's not so far back. It's not, I wouldn't test your memory by saying, what were you doing 10 years ago? 50 days ago. Peter's standing up and saying, just 50 days ago, you, my hearers, participated in the death of Jesus as a criminal, at least treated so, as he was executed on the city garbage dump of this very city at the hands of men acting entirely outside the law. Now, that was a very bold, very bold accusation. I, I, I almost wonder that some people didn't rush Peter and drag him and beat him to death right there for saying, you killed Jesus, and you did it outside the law. Oh, yes, I know it wasn't necessarily your hands that drove in the nails or your hands that said, or your voice that said, crucify him, although it's quite possible that some who said that were among Peter's hearers. Wasn't that big a city? You at the hands of lawless men killed Jesus. You know that the temple authorities did not obey their own careful laws on how to bring evidence and witnesses and have a trial. They paid false witnesses. They contradicted each other. They had the hearings at night, which was illegal. Pilate violated several regulations of the Roman law, which was a good, strong legal system. Lawless men had a lynching at the cross of Jesus. He was railroaded. He was manhandled. He was tortured outside the halls of real justice. And Peter's saying, do you remember this? Of course you do. And I'm telling you, you actually participated in the human rebellion that caused this thing to happen. Calvary was like an act of terrorism. Not that much unlike the killing of our ambassador when they came with rocket launchers and grenades and automatic weapons at the consulate in Benghazi this past week. Mankind in our hatred of God and our sinful rebellion against God, all mankind, Peter is saying, was represented in those individuals who engineered the cross of Jesus and did so outside the law. You did this. And I believe Peter's accusation reaches across the centuries to us. We did this. And those who don't know that are in a dire situation of missing one of the most important things they have to know in this life. But then there's this contrast, this, some would call it a paradox, that he adds to it. In fact, stating before he says, you did this in the structure of the sentence, he says, it occurred according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, this doesn't give an escape exactly to those who participated in this and say, oh, well, we were just doing what God wanted us to do. No, you were culpable. You were guilty. 
as, your, as participants in this. And yet there's a sense in which something God superintended and not simply reacted to, but rather planned, foreknew, and governed as free choices of men were being carried out, here's a wonderful thing, and it's very hard to understand, I grant you. It's mysterious. We, we say, look, it has to be one or the other. Either men did it by their choices or God determined it. The Bible consistently tells us, no, you can't make that separation. God is governor of all. He's all sovereign. His providence oversees everything that happens, and yet human beings act according to free choices. And trying to get at the nub of that, see the sort of intersection between those two things is very, very hard. And yet the Scripture consistently declares it, and nowhere better than right here. God oversaw every free choice of men who pronounced sentence on Jesus, who broke their own laws, nailed him to that cross. Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Isaiah 53 has those strange prophetic words telling us it was the Lord's will to crush him, the suffering servant Jesus, and yet the will of the Lord will actually prosper in his hands. Paradoxical? Yes. Do I fully understand that? No. But God declares it. God says we are responsible to him for our rebellious and sinful choices. And we participated in that whole culture, that whole, re- that whole uprising of the heart and mind of human beings that caused Jesus to be taken to that cross and, and appear to be a helpless victim to die there. And yet, here's the wonder This most sinful act in human history, this epitome act of of man's anger and man's fallenness, God used. God controlled. And by it, God brought about the effective payment for the very guilt and shame of the sin of those that were doing that to Jesus in that hour. Mystery. It's a mystery. But it's a wonderful mystery. We can't really solve it. And yet the scripture says, Revelation 13.8 tells us that the Lamb of God was slain from before the foundation of the world. God does not just know in advance. Some people get away with it this way. God just knows in advance what people are going to do. I tell you, folks, that is very inadequate. Very inadequate. There are far too many words that say God's determinate counsel, God's decree, God's will, to just say he's a reactor to what you're going to do. Somehow, mysteriously, God had a plan and free agents rebellious against him carried out his very plan. Marvelous. Our sins required the death of a sin bearer in our place. If we weren't going to die for our sins ourselves, God planned that there would be a sin bearer, and Jesus volunteered to do it and made free choices all the way that carried him into the captivity of free-choosing, angry people who caused it to take place. The result? God's plan accomplished. A once-for-all sacrifice that atones for the sin of those who will lay their hands and take ownership upon that sacrifice. What a wonder is here.
And I tell you, it's Christianity 101. Third and finally, Acts 2.24 tells us this. Just restating the sentence, it was impossible for Jesus to remain dead. You read that wonderful sentence? This man died. If we just, if Peter stopped at 24, what a hopeless sounding thing. But he, 23, I mean, he adds 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not just the cross, but the resurrection. They must be paired. Jesus was a true man because he really could die. But he was truly God because death could not hold him. Death could not contain him. And you see, Peter's been speaking about one and the same person here in these verses. Jesus as the the climax, the end result, the Victoria Falls, whatever you want to call him, of all this flow of divine revelation and wonders and, and God speaking throughout centuries. That Jesus plus the Jesus who was taken to death by the plan of God in the hands of lawless men, that Jesus is the same Jesus who could not be held by death. He rose again. So we have this wonderful Christ of ours presented to us here in this theological summation. In one sense, I said it's simple, it's basic, and yet its wonders and its mysteries are so deep and so profound that we, we just can't get all the way into them. We have to accept it as God's declaration. Now, in closing, I wanted to draw your attention back to a verse I haven't emphasized to this point in this text. It's the last word quoted from Joel, verse 21. And here's what Joel said, or let's really say it, what God said through Joel, the human prophet, long, long ago would be the result of these things coming about. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. True Christian preaching begins and ends with the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. And the result of that name, for those who trust in that name, take hold of that name, cling to and rest and reside all their confidence in that name, is salvation. The core of Christian faith is this. Salvation comes as you see that Christianity is Christ and Christ is Christianity. You must trust in this one. You must rest in this truth that Peter first declared. Jesus, the end goal of revelation. Jesus, the one crucified. Jesus, the one risen because death could not hold him. This is what we believe, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beating heart of Christian faith. Do you know? Am I insulting you to ask you such a basic question? Do you know this morning that he is a savior to you? Do you know this? Are you confident of this? Do you have another candidate in mind who can be a savior? Anything like him? How? Will you expect to escape the just penalty of sins piled up against you if you neglect this wonderful Savior who occupies the beating heart 
of Christian faith. I call you to him. Trust him. Stand upon him. Cling to him. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Christianity is Jesus Christ. Our Father, thank you for Peter. In some ways, he was a simple man. Thank you for choosing a simple man, not a university professor. A man of of skill with nets and boats, reading the weather and taming the waves. A man who maybe had to have things boiled down for him in a pretty simple way, at least at first. Thank you for using him as your spokesman. Thank you for speaking powerfully through Peter to give us this basic thing. I pray today, maybe some boy or girl, some young person who's wondered, what what really is all this about? Would see that it starts here. Christianity is Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust in his precious name. And as we begin there, let us see also that our faith culminates there in a grand way. We praise you for what you've done in Jesus for our salvation. Amen.